Hello, bonjour, ni hao, comme estas? This is John James and welcome to Champagne Strategy. This is a red pill business podcast which deconstructs world-class strategy focusing on growth, marketing and sales with just a sprinkling of tech and champagne. Anyone can talk about and draft strategy, but execution is increasingly where the battle is won. Connecting these phases is very challenging and those who do it well will be at the top of their game. These people move in very tight circles and often keep a low profile. They'll have battle scars to show, skin in the game and money in play, but learning from their practical wisdom is priceless. So it's my job to find the best people in the world and convince them to be interviewed for the benefit of all. Listen to this episode if you dare, but you've been warned, there's no going back. So in today's episode, we're talking with an agency from Australia called Thinkabel. And today we're speaking specifically to two of the most senior executives, Katie Daly and Paul Swan. Today we're covering the topic of creative strategy. And is there such thing as creative strategy? That's one of my first questions. But in this discussion, you'll learn lots about the advertising industry's progression uh, as a whole and how it's changed over the last 20 years in particular. Think about it as a great example of a modern agency that are really pushing the boundaries of what it means to be an agency. How closely they work with their clients and how they execute their work, I think is probably one of the best examples I've seen in the world. Probably the only other example that's famous to me would be uh, FCB's work with Burger King or RBI International, which we mentioned in this episode as well. Of course, there's many other agencies around the world that do really good work, but this is a local one in Australia where I am right now, and um, they do some really interesting work. I think they first came on my radar with the uh, Vegemite campaign, where they uh, created this banter during the Cricket Ashes series with England with uh, their rival brand, the English homegrown Marmite and just some really creative uses of media. And I just, it really caught my eye and I wanted to talk uh, to Thinkabel about creative strategy. So some of the things we talk about in this episode, um, we talk about being media agnostic and how they use the holy trinity of uh, earned, owned, paid, and shared uh, media together to great effect. And this is quite rare because most agencies only focus on paid media. And if you want to know um, what the tricks are to their success, uh, you'll have to listen to the whole thing because they do reveal a couple of bits of their secret sauce, which uh, are quite saucy indeed. If you're someone wanting to break into the industry, maybe you're a junior creative or a junior advertising person, this is a must listen because you'll pick up lots of little tidbits from two very experienced people that have been around the block and seen a lot of progression. As well, if you work in the advertising, marketing, marketing comms, or just general growth industry, um, I would strongly recommend you to listen to this whole episode. Also, if you run an agency, I think the, the segment where we talk about how the pitching process works and their take on that is really interesting and it really typifies maybe some of the most effective ways you can win pitches. So this is an agency that has massive clients, multi-billion dollar clients on their payroll, as well as small tech startups. And they've just won the Lion Nathan account, which is a subsidiary of Kirin Holdings, which is one of the largest beer companies in the world. They also do work for like Celius and No More Gaps, an iconic hardware brand. They work for Salvation Army and uh, many other brands such as Vegemite as well. 
and they're just fresh off the back of winning the three biggest awards in um, the Mumbrella Awards recently, which is the Full Service Agency of the Year, PR Agency of the Year, and Creative Agency of the Year. So all three. And they do this all in-house. They're also a staunchly independent uh, agency owned by four principal people, as well as a small stake by PwC, the big consulting firm. So very interesting agency, interesting people working there. Adam Ferrier is um, one of the four um, partners there who's quite prolific around, uh, does a lot of work in behavioral science. So if you don't learn something from this episode, you haven't been listening. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Katie Daly and Paul Swan. So today I suggested that because there was this uh, press release that went out recently about Aldi's wines being so good. And, you know, synonymously, this this happens every year, like clockwork. I'm sure some PR person is behind it, but this one keeps getting really good ratings. And I thought, you're both in Sydney and they have Aldi liquor there. So today we're drinking uh, this champagne called Champagne Morsigny. And I thought it's a hot day. It's summer here. So let's let's enjoy one. What do you think? Love! Anything French and bubbles? I'm a huge fan. I have the same, but I have the black label. So perhaps we can get into the difference between the black label and the white label. Let's open this up and record the pop, which is the main thing. While we're doing that, I want to tell you, um, on every single champagne bottle, there is a little code on the side of the label somewhere. On this one, it's at the back, right down the bottom. And it says, I'm not sure if you can see it on the camera. Uh, let's see if you can focus in on that. It says MA and it has a number. I'm not sure yeah. if you can see that. Yeah, I've okay. got one, yep. So um, every bottle of champagne that comes from France has this number. And these numbers are like like a license to, mm. to use the word champagne. And it's um, done by this central body called the CIBC. Anyway, the first two letters are quite significant because it tells you um, if the person makes the champagne themselves or if somebody else makes it. Uh-huh. And if it's a supermarket brand, in this case, the MA stands for, I'm going to get the pronunciation this wrong, but Marc Dachateur. There is this big company that makes a lot of these, I would call them cheaper or lower end uh, champagnes. And they make them specifically for certain supermarket chains. Uh, so we call it like a supermarket chain champagne brand. And this is one of them. Doesn't mean it's bad, but they tend to get it all produced in the same factory. And yeah, have you had this before or? Many times, it is my number one French champagne hack. Like it is my picnic champagne, it is my barbecue champagne because it's twenty two ninety nine. It used to be nineteen ninety five, eighteen months ago. They have increased it, but this one is the uh, the black label, which comes out for the festive season for three months only, and is ten dollars more. Oh, see, uh, I've got the uh, non-fancy version. So you must have, um, I'm guessing you probably have a bit more aging or something on that to make it a bit fancier. It's a just a black label. It's just got a black label on it and uh, that's, they can charge you $10 more for a black label. <laughs> it's like Johnny Red versus Johnny Black, like <laughs> probably the same. <laughs> so you got a few crates of that, Katie. I do. I am like a crazy lady who goes into Aldi when the black label comes out. They also do a pink pink version over the festive season as well. And when those two variants come out, I'm like this in my trolley, stealing them all <laughs> and everyone thinks I'm some kind of crazy alcoholic. I am not. I just hook up for the whole year until they come again nine months later. Yeah, we're just savvy. I love it. And what about you, Paul? <laughs> um, uh, you've decided to go with the, uh, the Scottish variety of champagne. I've gone with a uh, Glenmorangie. It's a, it's a single uh, single malt, nectar d'or, 
again, I've brutalised that pronunciation. Yes, it's a yeah uh, t- t- time of day for for something a bit different. So that's 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 my choice. Sounds good. Well, um, cheers. Thanks for being on the show. Cheers. Thanks cheers. for having us. Cheers. Thank. Yes. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually not that bad. It's a very good mm. drop. It is better than any other sparkling white and prosecco, in my opinion. I think it's. I loved that code, Intel. That was brilliant. So the grower champagne start with an RM, I think it is. Recolon manipulant, which means that it's a grower champagne. And then NM means negotiant. Manip- I'm going to get this wrong. NM means negotiant, as in you're someone who sells bottles of champagne. Um, so to be RM, you have to grow your own grapes and make your own champagne. And you can't buy anybody else's grapes. So you have to wholly own where the grapes are from or the vineyards. And it's called Grower Champagnes. And it's what a lot of people who are really into their champagne want to go niche into the like more obscure brands. That's pretty much what they drink. But sometimes their crop might get wiped out by the weather or something happens. So they have to buy mm. another grapes or they just sell their grapes to somebody else. And so as soon as you start blending stuff that's yours and not yours, then it's an NM, basically become a, a negotiant. And then the, the other one is a CM, which is like, a, it's a cooperative. So a lot of growers to get together and they sort of pool their funds to make a, a single label. Um, and that's um, that's the other way. So those are your kind of big four, you would say. And yeah, it doesn't mean one's better than others, but during the blending process, it's kind of like coffee. You can get a more consistent taste year to year. You can balance out certain you know, risk out of your, your mm-hmm. grapes that get destroyed in the frosts or whatever. But the real interesting ones tend to be where the craft is. And that tends to be the grower champagnes because they're like, it's about quality and like difference mm-hmm. for them rather than the masses and blending for consistency. So anyway, there you go. And yeah. can, you te- can you determine that from the bottle, each individual mm. bottle? So there's a code yeah. on every individual bottle because I just had just had an old bottle of legally Legally, there has to be a code there. Otherwise, you know, they're getting in huge trouble by uh, the champagne overlords. Well, do you, I mean, this is the first question, but like, do you think there's any such thing as creative strategy? Like I've got it on, on a topic that I cover briefly for some, um, some workshops that I run, but um, very high level. I mean, is there such thing as creative strategy in, in general? The way I always use to describe it is um, it, it's a bit like David Beckham. Uh, that that will be a more meaningful analogy to, to some than others. But um, if you don't know who David Beckham is, uh, he's a very famous football player. But he's also known for his, his delivery of the ball into the right place at the right time with precision, accuracy and velocity. And uh, that's the way I kind of look like I look at creative strategy that yeah, you've got to deliver that that piece of thinking into the creative process you know really accurately really precisely with great velocity and and it's a very inviting thing then for um those working on that piece of creative work to kind of attack and embrace and get into and propel forward um so in in this case the the creative thinkers would be the 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 strikers in the analogy um and so yeah that's kind of i think about creative strategies being incredibly important really fundamental and something that kind of almost kind of sets up and propels that that, that creative thinking that comes after it. Just quickly, for maybe people who are watching now, that'd be like De Bruyne or Pogba, you know, playing that centre midfield decision kind of thing with the, the through balls. Is that what you mean? Or Yes. Yeah, they're, they're both excellent examples. But it's about, yeah, the delivery of that information in a really enticing way that you want to latch onto it, you want to embrace it, and you want to kind of you know, power it into the back of the net. And for, for those less uh, football, fanatics <laughs> um i think i actually think there are 
strategists or planners who are their sweet spot is to deliver creative strategy. And those types who are highly, highly talented work best in that kind of slither in the middle between the kind of upfront brand and comms planning and strategy. And then before that goes into the into the creative department. I had the very great pleasure of working with Martin Weigel, who is now the head of, or has been for a very long time, the head of planning at Widen and Kennedy in Amsterdam. Wow. And he always used to say that any strategy or brief or insight should be pregnant with creative possibilities. And I think there was always this sense from him that if you're not creatively and inherently creative in as a strategist, then actually don't bother. And, and the worst thing you can do as a creative strategist is to just hand the brief over and run never brief and run, fire and forget. It's just the laziest form of planning was was something he always used to say. So um, I absolutely believe that there is creative strategy. And I think what delivers brilliant creative strategy is that insight that gives you that aha moment or, or really powerful human truth. That's really simplistic, but, but we don't seem to be able to deviate from those things being at the core of what sort of sets up and underpins what becomes the kind of jumping off point from from a creative perspective from there on yeah just just building on that I think increasingly I think kind of at least over the course of my career it's become much more of a collaborative and iterative process it hasn't been necessarily that one big set piece strategic piece of work it's it's been something you've worked on kind of closely as a group and you know I think Katie and I are both always really proud when a piece of creative thinking or a creative work comes from a strategist. Um, you know, almost kind of like you know, the, there's a blurring of, of of the disciplines. So, yeah, it shouldn't be seen as a baton pass necessarily, but um, uh, you know, working together and in conjunction. Um, uh, and you know, I think good good creative people are often very strategic and 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 vice versa. So the the coming together of those is what is the real majesty in the process. And uh, this is something I want to ask you both because uh, yeah, there's this kind of fallacy, especially when you're working in an ad agency structure. Uh, you know, you've got your account managers over there, you've got your creators over there, you've got your planners sort of in the middle. Uh, some people say that, oh, well, they're creative and those people aren't. I'm sort of maybe on the other side, like everyone's creative to an extent, but maybe they don't get the chance to express that creativity. They also talk about like, you know, creative financial people with accountants or, or tax accountants, you know, that can be very creative in the way they minimize your tax. So is creativity just limited to to creatives per se, or what are your opinions on that? Absolutely not. Uh, I feel really strongly about this. I think you have to be intuitively creative as a human being to be in advertising and in communication. And I think what's happened is that the structure and rigidity and hierarchy of discipline in agencies over time has incorrectly sort of put people in these boxes with defined titles and has made people feel like they can't deviate from being an account management type or a planning type and and it's actually nonsense and I think when I'm looking at hiring people and who is going to be right for for our agency now it's I'm always just looking for what's getting you out of bed in the morning and if it's not something that's creatively orientated and is and you're curious about then we're kind of not interested because I think you've always got to have a creative opinion at the table. And that's something that Paul and I are really passionate about is you have to be presenting a creative opinion 
constantly. If you just deflect and defer to the person with the creative title in the room, then I think you've done yourself a disservice. And so there is an expectation that everyone has a creative point of view all of the time. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah 100%. I mean, just as we were talking about um, previously, um, this kind of sort of blurring of lines between uh, different people and, and sort of creating an environment where everyone feels confident in putting their creative thinking forward I think is super important because a lot of people have it and they kind of hold it back for fear that they'll be judged they won't be able to kind of necessarily defend their their, their creative thinking and and so I agree that I think most people have creativity within them but I'd also say there are some people that are better than it than others some people have these unique you know bendy brains these kind of lateral ways of looking at things um that other people don't and and they have strengths in in other areas so um i think yeah what we're trying to do is create a culture where everyone feels like um they can bring their ideas forward and and actually some of the best work i've ever been involved with in my entire life has not come from uh, someone with the word creative in their in their title it's come from someone in planning or someone in strategy or someone in account service or, or whatever it might be and maybe the other thing that's happening as well is there's a blurring of uh, almost kind of where the creative boundaries are within the creative world as well. I mean, a lot of our um, copywriters also now design and illustrate and, um, you know, dabble in music as well. And, you know, I think everyone's got the tools at their disposal to to do more now. So that's pretty exciting as well, cracking these real unicorns um, uh, out of people that can do anything. I was just going to say, whilst um, we sort of do occasionally, we're okay with the idea that, you know, creative ideas can come from anywhere. We still respect that there is a creative authority in the room that has a creative title of some description that that makes the ultimate call on whether it's good enough. And, and whether it's sharp enough. And I think you've, you've got to make sure that that respect exists. We're not saying that anyone and everyone, you know, has and should have the pay grade of, of a top esteemed creative that has built their career in that regard. Yeah, exactly. And um, it's something that I found uh, interesting because I was listening to some of uh, Adam Ferrier's, you know, talks. He's quite prolific, as, as you probably both know. Um, and he, he said uh, at your agency, and correct me here, you have like two titles, like Tinkers and something else. Like, so you don't even name people as account managers or creatives or whatever. You've, you've kind of lived up to your beliefs here. Tell me more about how you structure that. It's really interesting because I think one of the the follies of our industry over time is that we've got, I alluded to it before, but these really rigid structures. And and as an industry, we haven't really broken free from that for a while. And I think, you know, Thinkabell was founded um, on this idea that actually we didn't need all of those distinctive disciplines, that actually what you need is a really strategically minded person or someone we would call a thinker who is a cross between an account management type and a, and a strategy type and, and or a tinker uh, who is a, a creatively orientated type, but also we have production tinkers and design tinkers. So thinkers and tinkers is, is our model and is it very much at the, the, the heart of, of how we operate as a business. Um, but just that in and of itself is all about removing the layers, removing the hierarchy and just encouraging thinking in a disruptive way that, that challenges the, the ways of old and, and the models that had gone before deliberately because there isn't really a need for it. And it's incredible how, how well it works when you, when you break down the ways of the past. 
Yeah, it's very interesting. And uh, that's something I want to talk yeah. about next, which is like, um, you know, there's this inherent uh, thing within the industry about pitching. Um, and, you know, you have your creative agency over there, you have your media agency there, uh, you've got maybe, you know, an ad agency that sort of ties the two groups together and production agency over there who actually produces the the creative or uh, videos and, you know, uh, imagery, whatever. Uh, obviously, you don't do that to the same extent. And you don't really believe like I do in this pitching process. Tell me what sort of changed in this this whole pitching process that we're all exposed to. I think um, I think we've devalued ourselves throughout the pitching process. Most agencies charge based on hours and as opposed to charging for output and valuing their ideas and their thinking. And so we stupidly decide that we will engage in these pitch processes and instead what we should be doing is recognising our value in our ideas and and what we offer and and having constructive conversations with clients that are coming to us and saying, we would like to include you in a pitch. We should be saying, well, that's nice, but actually, you know, where is this going? What is the longer-term relationship and opportunity here? Perhaps we shouldn't pitch. Perhaps we should do a project together and we can feel out whether there's a cultural fit and we can feel out whether, you know, the, what the business needs is what the agency needs. And and so I, I don't know where we've lost our way, but it feels like we've sort of devalued what we offer as an industry. And actually that there's a real desire, we talk about this a lot, but can we bandy together as an industry and start to value ourselves more and, and actually drive the pitch process ourselves as opposed to it feeling like the clients are constantly driving that conversation and, and putting agencies under undue stress when we should really be deciding, is this right for our people? Is this right for our product? Um, and, and really, you know, pulling together as an industry force to decide how we want to behave. Paul sort of talks about how the pitch process was revolutionised in the architectural landscape, and I think there's probably a lot we could we could borrow from from them in how they pitch. There's obviously good and bad processes that that we encounter all the time. I think one thing we've started to do is be much more disciplined about the ones we get involved in and and, and engage in and understanding if it's um, a situation where there's a kind of, you know, enduring relationship that they're looking to uh, to identify through it, or if it's, um, you know, one off project based and, you know, the investment required um, to, 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 to deliver a pitch is enormous. I mean, agencies would love to think that they can do them in a short, streamlined, concise way. And, and we try our best, but I think we're all naturally competitive. And once we uh, once we see the opportunity, we kind of launch ourselves into them, and they can um, they can become all consuming. Um, and we we probably all have a bit of a, a love hate relationship with them. In that um, uh, they can be invigorating, they can you know force you to do new thinking because you're you're in that you know heightened competitive state. Um, but they can also be distracting as well. I mean, you know, our first responsibility is to our existing clients and. Um, you know, making sure that, you know, they're well serviced and uh, we don't take an eye off the ball there. Yeah, so look, um, I was really interested in uh, Fernando Machado, the ex-CMO uh, of Burger King and RBI or Restaurant Brands International. And um, he was talking about this going like, he doesn't really do pitches. He has some existing relationships with people that he know does good work. And uh, occasionally they might, you know, 
contract some other people to come up with some better ideas if there's a deficiency. But what I see, and I want your comments on this, uh, this pitching process sort of emanates from two things. One is a governance thing. So I, we have to, you know, get three or more quotes so we can make a decision. So there's some kind of like you know, balance and check on you know, who we choose. So we're not, you know, funneling money to, to things that are against the company's interests. So there's this, you know, tick the box compliance thing there. And then secondarily, uh, some, some clients use it um, as like a political means to create an idea, to latch onto, to further their own career internally. So, you know, they'll, they'll dangle the carrot of here's our media account for a year, you know, it's 20, $50 million, whatever it is. Um, you know, we're in the box seat. Uh, what are you going to do for us? Do you ever sort of switch that dynamic around a bit? I mean, ultimately, uh, it's it's our decision as an agency whether we participate or not. And also, companies have have to have governance for you know very good reasons, and you know that that that's understandable too. And I, I suppose in those instances, is incumbent upon you if you are an incumbent to have done a good job in the you know years preceding that review that you know you make it um, an easy decision for them when when it comes to it. And in terms of what we've been doing, I suppose in those situations is. I suppose feeling like we have the confidence to help shape what that process is to, you know, um, there's, there's been instances where we haven't been able to do a, a check-in or a review with a client during a, a, a creative process. And we've, we've said that our process is a collaborative one. And for us, that's, that's a, a bit of a deal breaker. You know, we won't, we won't participate if we're just having to sort of, um, you know, take a scattergun approach to this. We want to work with you to get to the right answer because, um, that's how we that's how we do things. So I suppose there have been instances where we've you know dug our heels in on things that are just important to our process um, in in that um, in that pitch process. So it's not something that we we enter into lightly now because of you know the implications sort of financially on the team and and yeah just having the confidence to to, to shape it in a way that you know not only suits them but also suits you. I think. Yeah. Well, can I, think, I can um, I ask you? Um, as well um just about this process and, and katie so you can go in, in a sec but like interested to know what is your process if it's a collaborative one like how does it differ from perhaps just the the pitch and you know here's our slide deck of creative iterations first and foremost what we try and identify is cultural fit so as paul was sort of getting out there very quickly we learn whether or not we're entering into a dictatorship or whether we're entering into a collaboration and if the client's sort of saying, this is how it will be, you will deliver on these dates and this is what you will deliver, we we very quickly sort of push back and, and, and try and understand why that is and talk to them about us and our philosophy and how we work. And, and as Paul was getting out there, we are an extremely collaborative agency. We don't squirrel away in a back room and then come and have a ta-da moment at all. That That's just not the, the way that our culture is, it orientates around. So if, if we get the sense that the client who's, who's suggested we potentially engage in this pitch together is adverse to what we're proposing, we'd quite quickly exit that. I think we'd just know early on that culturally there's going to be friction there and it's just not worth engaging further. And that, that is really important to us. So that's one of the first things we'll look at, it, what's the cultural fit. And then, you know, I think just to go back to what I was saying earlier about value, we we increasingly are, are looking and hoping to partner with people that will pay a pitch fee. There is obviously a huge financial burden that, that comes upon an agency when they're engaging in that process. Uh, we have to have our eyes on our existing clients. Usually we have to bring freelance resource in, particularly creative resource, 
in order to service that pitch. And actually, it's a huge drain, not just on existing staff's time, but financially on the agency. So, you know, that's something we we would always ask the client, is there a pitch fee involved? And, and if so, what does that look like? And that that is a big dis- factor in our decision making as to whether we'll proceed. And then I think, you know, there are a whole lot of other sort of metrics that we look at that we that we sort of check against, you know, create creatively is it right for us do we feel like the aspiration in the opportunity is right as a project or as a long-term relationship we also look at what are the category gaps within the agency you know is there an automotive client that we're just desperate to have and this is the opportunity so we're going to go for it even though we might have to sacrifice on some other areas so we've got quite a big sort of new business strategy and some rigor around that that helps us get to those decisions but it is it's an involved process and and all for good measure I think because it you can just make the wrong decision and end up in a pitch process and and in a partnership with with a client that's perhaps just not quite right and it can actually be to the detriment of the whole agency culture as a result so um we're we're intentional about those decisions we make along the way because of that yeah well can you give us an example um because uh, this is really interesting I mean uh, you you probably came on my radar I know um, they're not um part of of your client list anymore but you know Vegemite was the one that came on the radar you were doing some very creative stuff with them creating this banter with uh, Marmite the brand in the UK and I really like the way you were blending different mediums and media together for example you were doing uh, one page ads with the line and then you were using social media to amplify that and it was like a lot of brands weren't using print ads at that time it was kind of a bit of you know on the way out and I like the way you were sort of humorizing the brand personality and bringing all that, out, all that out. So, you know, how do moments like that come about and how do you look at media when you're executing that creative strategy? Yeah, no, just probably just to set the record straight slightly on that one, we've still absolutely worked with um, with Vegemite, just not on the the, the uh, media planning and buying side, but oh, on, good. The, on the creative okay. side of the business and media side. So, um, yes, an amazing brand to work with because of its you know, its heritage and its cultural kind of meaning within within Australia. And when you've got a brand like that with, with so much um, uh, richness and, and and powerful connotations, it's it, it's a really exciting one to, to, to work on creatively. And I mean, the specific example you mentioned there around the ashes, uh, just a very opportunistic um, situation. I think um, uh, the team that was working on it at the time heard that... Um, uh, that Marmite were distributing jars of their product at um, at Ashes Games, and it just felt like it was um, just a, an opportunity, sort of begging to be um, taken advantage of. And and really, I think the, the the most interesting thing about that is the dynamic and relationship between agency and client in that moment to be able to make it happen really quickly. Obviously, there's a, such an incredibly short window of time that you need to to um, to, to leap into there. And I think within about um, 24 hours someone had written um uh, that 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 um, response and and the media choice was very intentional there um while um, print media maybe um doesn't have the the reach that it, it once does it still has the uh, the cachet and the credibility um and um taking out a full page ad still has some sort of weight and meaning to it so it was a very deliberate choice that that we knew would spark something and would also create a an object that we could then use within earned media. So it almost created an asset, a visual that you could then um, put out. And once it's once it's printed, it's kind of even more permanent than, than being just posted. So um, yeah, very deliberate coming together in that instance of a, of a creative idea 
and some media thinking to to make that work and really quickly uh, and that was that was an example of you know thinkabel at its absolute best earned media creative um, thinking and, uh, and and paid media kind of coming together in this sort of holy trinity if you like we're always looking for those opportunities always always trying to be you know have our finger on the pulse of what's happening in the world and on culture particularly around our brand so we can we can leap on those and get our you know more than our fair share of cultural capital I'm really interested in this because and maybe katie you can expand on this because um not just the the multiple mediums earned owned and, and paid that you're using there but also on your ability to respond really quickly or, or be you know i hate to use the word agile but um a lot of uh, marketing teams are especially if they have an agency relationship because you know they'll, they'll plan in 12 month cycles they'll pitch something you know the big idea there'll be some creative iterations but really it's just like maintenance past a certain point and um often what happens is the brand misses these like little moments where they can control the conversation and maybe the internal team really doesn't have the skill set to execute or they're too slow you know to approve things um and they, they miss that chance so really interested to to see how how your structure work with that like you said you responded quickly and i was really impressed at that but i'm like are these guys doing internally like they can't have an agency where does that come from how did you plan that so quickly it's um you talked about Fernand, uh, Fernanda earlier and he talks about his agency village being all in and I think our tightest client partnerships we are all in we know their business as intimately as they do and because of that we're aware of their business agenda their strategic priorities and if you combine that with being on you know the pulse of culture you can respond really, really quickly. In the instance with Vegemite, that was certainly all of those things coming together. And we do have a pretty quick reflex at Thinkabell. We, we, you know, we're not a slow agency. We're not a juggernaut that takes months and months to get to an outcome. There are certain briefs that will require, you know, a more considered process. But I think we would say that the quick twitch reflex is something that that we really pride ourselves on being able to do well. And so that was literally a case of having people who identified the moment because we had the Holy Trinity under one roof. We could activate the call to the media publisher. We could get the client approval within the hour. We could synthesise that with what was going on in the UK. And we, you know, just had people working in a 24-hour cycle and it was done. Because if you're not in that moment, it's it's past. And, and then you're old news. And obviously that news is only valid for the 24-hour news cycle anyway. So... I do think we are very fortunate in that we're a business that that has all of the things under one roof, in particular the earned component, which is quite rare these days for so-called advertising agencies to have PR genuinely baked in. Paul and I always sort of, I'm giving our secrets away now, but we always say that our earned or PR offering is our secret source. It is so rare that you would have Paul and, and you know your ECD and your head of PR in a room fighting over an idea but fighting for good measure because you have to make sure that there is earned potential or a PR hook baked into the, the the core of a strong idea and that I think for us is what's sort of propelling and driving our ideas far beyond what paid advertising can deliver for our clients. 
Yeah, can you tell me more about this? Because um, this is really interesting, the owned, earned, and, and paid. Like uh, a lot of time when people, uh, big brands contract an agency, it's just all paid media. So it's just, let's uh, resell some some um, inventory from you know TV, radio, you know whatever, print, package it together. And then that's that's the growth lever. And then they might have a PR agency on the side that sort of maybe works collaboratively, but sometimes quite separate. And then their own media will be like internal teams or a social media management company that might you know, control some blogs and, and social media handles. And those three, sort of parties are quite separated from what i've seen with you you kind of bring a lot of those together and you know you get this synergistic effect because um you can use the benefits and pros and cons from each of those to sort of bat off each other and you get a more holistic sort of voice coming through that's more consistent is that intentional with your planning process or and and are you called an ad agency if that's the case so if you're doing owned and, and earned media as well yeah, maybe we'll we'll get back to the what we call ourselves, but I, I think where it all starts and, and it only works if you can create a an almost egoless sort of environment. I think if if you've got those sort of three or four different disciplines and you've got um, uh, huge egos kind of at the top of them, sort of battling for supremacy, then it's never going to work. There's always going to be kind of friction or resistance between them. So there's a huge amount of work that goes into this notion that you know opinions are valid and that each discipline is as important as the next and you know there's no there's no hierarchy or supremacy that exists in it and you know it, it's been fascinating I mean, i've worked with um pr agencies my whole life but it's really different having them kind of in the room and really really appreciating what it takes for them to do their job what it takes for them to get journalists interested as opposed to what I might think it would take for them to get a journalist interested in covering um, uh, an idea or a, a story. And I think we often think that our campaign is so exciting that um, the media are going to want to rush out and report it. But that's not the case quite often. They actually deliberately filter and are very resistant to covering um, sort of commercial uh, commercial stories like that. Um, so it's really about finding what is the story within the idea. And, you know, that, that's been a fascinating process working closely with um, our, our earned team. And then I think a lot of the, the best ideas that, that happen um, are sort of media ideas. They're clever uses of the media landscape. And again, you only really get those when you're sitting in a room with the people that, you know, really do understand the media landscape. They understand how the, the TV market works or, you know, kind of social media kind of is propelled now through paid um, uh, paid media. So um, it's 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 a combination of, I think, an environment that, that lets everyone kind of feel equal, but also a true and deep understanding of those disciplines. It doesn't work if it's superficial, it falls over. So it's, it, there's got to be depth and, and, uh, and, and genuine appreciation for what one another does. In terms of how, what we call ourselves, John, if we're not an advertising agency, most recently we were absolutely delighted to win Mumbrella Creative Agency of the Year, Full Service Agency of the Year and PR Agency of the Year. And I think for us it was the, it was actually the combination of winning all three that was more meaningful to us than had we just won one of those because for that uh, – to have been that successful that sort of expressed that we do have that diversity across all of those things so if you can come up with a name that that encompasses all three titles then uh let me know i guess creative consultancy or or, or something in that realm but i guess yeah we're, we're certainly not an advertising agency we 
we do much, much more than that. So we'll let you know when we can come up with a catch. Yeah, no, that's that, the vibe. I mean, at the end of the day, we're just sort of like putting labels on something. But I mean, you know, traditionally, those agencies have been split up. So it's interesting they actually have awards for the, that separation. But like, I suppose you're coming towards, you remind me more of like a growth uh I hate to use the word growth agency, but, you know, it's quite big in Silicon Valley where there is no separation between, um, you know, those components of the production process, the strategy, the execution, like everyone works as a collaborative cross-functional team together to, for the outcome, as opposed to, you know, uh, working in silos and, you know, taking care of each other's mm. turf. So that's what it sort of reminds me of a bit from afar, but I, I don't like to use labels either. You know, yeah. uh, one thing I want to come back to though, just while we're talking about this, you mentioned some of your clients are like quite uh, on board and you work, you know, with them, uh, you're all in. One thing that I've found that happens with some clients is that they just don't have that creative process or that uh, mindset or that culture to do things that are maybe a bit risky and push the envelope. There's this famous comic that I really love by Tom Fishburne about, uh, you know, the innovation mantra. And the, the manager goes to his two subordinates, oh, can you come up with something that's like really innovative uh, that nobody's done before? And they present the idea back to him and he goes, oh, is there any examples of other people doing this? It sounds pretty risky, you know? So there's this like opposite dichotomy between uh, those those two um, thought processes. So, um, you know, when you're filtering out clients or whatever, like, can you just see some some brands and cultures in the business get it and they're conducive to that process and others just will never be like a hundred percent you do and i think we're quite fortunate in that we tend to attract creative marketers um there's sort of a magnet between them and us i think just because of the style of work that that we do so we're quite fortunate in that that initial filter tends to be a little bit easier because we're, we're attracting each other for for good reason uh, I think from a marketing perspective, I really hope that a, a, as a bare minimum, marketers are, are adopting the 70-20-10 approach. You know, there's you've got to have some risk in there. So, you know, your core at 70 to keep driving things and humming along fine. There needs to be 20% that's sort of on the periphery and starting to push boundaries. You've got to have 10% at risk financially that you're willing to innovate around and drive new NPD around and and be okay if you try something and it fails, but pick yourself up from your learnings and try again. And I think that mentality really needs to be bleeding through, you know, the marketing um, departments of, of organisations these days, because if you're not trying and failing, then you're, you're not trying and succeeding either. So um, that's really important to us, I think, that that mindset exists on our client side and, and is certainly something that, that we adopt probably those ratios are far in reverse and there's more more risk for us in terms of we just like to try stuff and give it a go and if it fails we fail fast and we move on um and, and that's just you know one of the the joys of being in a creative business but that's really important to us from a mindset perspective i think yeah i think we're um we're always pretty optimistic as well when we go in that we'll we'll find a way as well um you know there's um there's lots of different ways that you could um, deliver something interesting or unexpected, and it might not be necessarily through that big, you know, brand campaign that uh, that the client's doing. It might be, you know, through you know, experimenting within their social channels or some interesting NPD. And again, it helps to have that sort of diverse business that we do. And I mean, we we haven't really talked much about it, but production is very much baked into the heart of our um, organisation too, which gives us this 
access to all these different you know partners and collaborators in different disciplines and and things like that so i think we've always got our kind of antenna up for for opportunities and and the more you understand a client and how they work and how kind of governance and um and the legal department um works I had an interesting one recently where um we've got a we've got a client who um uh, brilliant brilliant client but it's um it's in a kind of more conservative category and um they brought their um their head of legal into a conversation about a piece of work because they were maybe a bit concerned that it wouldn't wouldn't get his tick and he absolutely loved it and he gave it his full sanction so i think if you just adopt this optimism if you keep trying uh you know and uh keep persisting and keep looking for the angle um there's always a way of of kind of making it happen and um you know i think clients appreciate that as well they want to do interesting work and they want to just make sure that it's it's done in the proper in the proper way and that um you know there's no kind of um uh adverse effects as a result of it but um you know uh, most times they're, they're they're up for it if you can position package it in the right way for them. This is really good because um, this sort of leads into the next thing I want to ask you, which is like the changes you've seen in the industry. So we kind of talked about you've got a pretty progressive or almost Silicon Valley mindset into the way that you've structured uh, the organization, the way you work. Um, and then you're working with you know brands, which I would argue probably a bit more progressive or on the leading edge of where the industry is going. But I often find there's the, you know, old habits die hard, as they say, and these legacy sentimentalities, these pitches, you know, like um, these RFE processes are, um, are still quite well ingrained with, you know, with all of the more incumbent um, clients. So what are some of the things that you've seen that the industry has changed so much? Because it has changed a lot, especially in the last 20 years with, you know, the advent and, and usage of the internet. So like before and after, what are the biggest things you guys have noticed? There's so many, isn't there? Where where does where does one start? Paul and I often talk about how long we've been in the industry and how much has evolved over the course of that time. So we're definitely sort of showing our age. So there are many many places we could go here. Um, there's some more some more obvious ones. I think one of the things that I I'll call out is the speed of which we now move has just been incredibly um, jutapulted. At a, at a speed of which I don't think anyone quite saw coming. I mean, if, if I reflect back on when I was in London sort of, you know, almost a decade ago, the amount of time that we had to ideate, to create, to pontificate um, was actually a luxury compared to, to what we, we're faced with now. And we obviously touched on agility and turning things around in 24 hours to be, um, you know, of the cultural moment. It has its good and its bad because I think one of the things that Paul and I are always saying is we've got to allow time for the craft. You know, it's one thing to be sitting in an edit suite and just eating lovely treats, but actually we need time to craft things, to perfect them. There's such magic in in, in creativity and we, we've got to allow for that to flourish. So there's this real struggle between doing things at speed, doing them well, executing well, making sure that the quality doesn't fall, but we've got to make sure we make enough craft time in as well and that things are well considered and that we haven't left really important detail on, on the chopping board floor because we've, we've moved too quickly. So... I think that's a really interesting challenge for us as an industry as a whole because clients are uh, expecting so much more of us in in a compressed time frame yet the quality expectation hasn't 
dropped at all. And and I think that puts immense pressure on, on us as an industry to, to continue to deliver. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's um, uh, it's it's moved at kind of lightning speed. Probably one that I personally enjoyed in terms of um, a, a change that's occurred, in, probably more so in the last sort of four or five years, is is a, this sort of swing back to kind of more emotional or emotion-driven kind of advertising um, or communications. And there was a there was a point in time where everything was becoming incredibly rational, where we realised that we could be kind of programmatic in how we executed things and we could we could deliver a thousand different messages and um uh, and there's definitely some kind of merit in 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 that um in that way of doing things but what it was doing was kind of making everything quite mechanical and and rigid and um uh and and individualistic almost and um it's been really interesting to see i think um a lot of the good thinking that's come out of um uh uh, marketing sciences around the, the the value of emotion in 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 comms and and, and connection, um, and that's not just making people kind of you know um, sort of cry or laugh, but just feel something, um, and and therefore kind of wed them and fuse them to to your message and ultimately to your brand. So um, yeah, that's kind of really exciting to see that while while there's ever more data and there's ever more information that that you can kind of draw on, um, some of those kind of more base kind of human emotive responses are, are sort of winning out which um uh which i think is fantastic for the, for the for the industry yeah it's funny um like um i've noticed that in the tech industry and i know you have a couple of tech clients as well um which you probably can't mention but what i've seen recently is there's this whole performance mantra performance marketing mantra thing which was you know cheap direct response style digital channels um you know facebook 2014 15 google ads you know all that kind of thing and it was very just like transactional it was like let's just get you know in market audiences mm-hmm. to buy you know acquisition was cheap you know blah blah blah. obviously that's matured a lot now and uh, now i've noticed ironically tech companies have gone from being very dismissive of anyone from the traditional marketing or brand side and now they're all hiring brand head of brand a vp of brand it's mm-hmm. like the new big thing like it's like sliced bread i'm like guys this has been around for like a long time <laughs> like there are certain fundamentals that have not changed and you're just finding about them now so um i've seen that come back to like okay let's look at some of these irrational um you know purchase triggers and like let's become a part of a tribe you know communities are big now and using owned media um you know to create sort of a bit of a, a following and you know come on with us on that journey is is quite big now with a lot of tech firms which is very funny because you know that they're, they're by engineers who were like very um you know use our product for this functional benefit and that was their messaging so that's completely flipped now have you guys seen that uh, as well on, on your end yeah definitely i think to build on that and what paul was saying there is there is this swing back to brand-based communication and it's funny because we all sort of look over there at the shiny new toy get enamored with it and start running after it and obviously we saw that with you know, the decoupling of media agencies many moons ago, what on earth that, that happened for, I don't know. And then sort of the, the split off of, of specialised agencies. And so everyone's sort of running in all different directions. All the media budgets are following. And then all of a sudden, there's actually nothing good in the world. There's just lots of stuff everywhere. And it's not particularly well considered. So I think everyone's realised that we need to get back to the heart of our brand. You know, I'm very pleased to see the resurgence of the long and the short of it, all these sorts of things that have actually been around for a very long time, but sort of fell down the the, the priority list a little bit. And, and now everyone's reminded that 
particularly as we've just endured a, a global pandemic, you have to be investing in brand if you want to reap the long-term rewards. I think, you know, on average, a CMO's tenure in a role is is two, two three years max. And so they're coming in and making decisions that ensure that what's being delivered out into the world is noticeable quickly, but that's not necessarily going to do the right thing by the brand long term. So, you know, there's always that push and pull between the individual success and the business success and and, and making the right decisions around that accordingly. So it's really interesting because we've got to make sure that, you know, we're doing the right thing by the brand at all times and every decision we make is, is for the good of the longevity of that brand in the long run. And I suppose just to interject there, um, and this is something I want to ask you, like we're coming down to measurement here. Like I, um, I've i seen people be more familiar with these digital direct response mediums because they can kind of measure the outcome from it and go, mm. oh, here's our unit economics, cost this much to, to this outcome. Therefore, as you know, a senior manager or someone in an executive position, I can then release more budget for more of that. So the measurement was superior to perhaps... Um, some of the other ways of, of doing it, which may be more effective, but just, you know, it's harder to measure some of these brand effects. So I know, um, and Adam was talking about this, that you guys are quite big on the measurement side of things. Um, so it's not just about creativity and, and using different mediums, but like you actually um, use a lot of data and, and analysis on this. Can you, can you sort of like measure a creative idea? And how do you guys go about doing that for, for your clients? Uh, measurement kind of does sit sit at the heart of our process. I mean, we we talk about delivering measured magic, uh, the combination of marketing science and, and hardcore creativity. That's um, that's the, the Thinkerbell kind of mantra. Um, and it, I suppose it was sort of driven by kind of the original kind of founders coming together from different disciplines that represented those those areas. Um, so it's kind of almost hardwired uh, into 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 how we we think about it and. We're kind of very invested in things like um, the M6 conference and, and things like that. And um, there's constant um, kind of education within the organization around um, uh, marketing sciences and, and, and measurement. Um, and I, I suppose what we, what, one of the things we try and do, I think, from the beginning is understand the most important metrics to a client. Um, you know, what, what is their ideal dashboard? Um, you know what? What is it that is important for them to measure? Because uh, that that's the kind of foundation of it, I suppose. Um, you're right. I mean, traditional kind of brand tracking has tended to be a kind of a, a longer process, but obviously you're going to have measures that are almost instantaneous um, that you can track through to things that um, you know require some kind of more in depth and sort of longitudinal um, analysis. And I think it, you know the, the approach is to take a kind of holistic view on um on measurement across those different things so- um great so that sort of brings me to the next thing which was with the creative process and, and, and creative strategy if we want to use that term I, are there any specific sort of rules or, or tenets of wisdom that you would say to someone else like hey always follow this process or never stray from from you know covering these points look again it, it's it's very dependent on the nature of the task i think when we when we get a job or a brief or a um, an assignment comes in there's uh, there's quite a bit of thinking about what is the right process and who are the right people and and, and how are we going to tackle and part of that comes through experience I suppose you know I've, I've seen this type of challenge before therefore I know what's going to work or what type of brains or what kind of people are going to need to be involved in it. are we going to have to involve a you know significant strategic phase up front that's going to propel us to a point or do we actually think this is best 
you know, delivered in a workshop environment with, you know, kind of all the people in one space over a really condensed period of time. So there's there's no kind of one size fits all. And there's a bit of kind of instinct and experience that goes into to, to sort of developing it. I think what I was really like to have is kind of to get a sense about what the outcome should look like. What is the shape of the ideal outcome in the minds of the client and the consumer? And once I've got that, um, you know, whether it's a it's a it's a piece of work we can kind of coalesce coalesce around to 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 determine that's where we want to head. Um, that's important for me. I know where the north star is and the destination, and then it's it's charting a course and pulling in the right people at the right time to 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 kind of get there. And I think keeping everyone, um, you know, in that direction, it's very easy. I think as as that process um, progresses to kind of veer um veer off course and but if you've got that that kind of vision of a of an ideal north star and everyone's aligned around it you can you, you can kind of really aim for it but um i was going to kind of talk about this notion of christmas tree where you kind of go out wide with lots of ideas and then you kind of narrow it down and then out wide again and then narrow it down and eventually you kind of work your way up to to the to the, the pointy bit where there's a star at the end um and it's um uh, you know, there's a bit of a bit of an attritious process that gets you there sometimes. But I just, it's interesting, isn't it, that we sort of talk about what's the process around creativity? The the Christmas tree, I think, is is the best analogy for how most agencies would attack a brief. But it is also quite iterative, and whether the idea comes before the strategy, uh, you know, and or you're retrofitting the insight and the strategy back is 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 always one that's a, an interesting topic of conversation for the dinner table. I was having a, a an interesting chat the other day with um, an ex-marketer for Miles Global who was very, very involved in the Snickers, you not you when you're hungry work. And I said to her, which came first, the insight or the idea? And she said, well, the insight wasn't you're not you and you're hungry. That was very much the idea and the line. But we just, you know, had a really powerful strategic springboard around youth and the mindset of youth and, and what it means to them when, you know, they are in that moment of actual need in terms of Maslow and, and needing to needing to eat and, and what that unlocks. So just an interesting conversation with her around how you land um, at, at, at which comes first. But I, I think it's 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 often more fluid uh, than than having a process around around how you get to great ideas and the shape of them is what what's exciting now I think is that the shape of them is so undefined because media is so fragmented gone are the days where I recall vividly having the the next client brief on my desk which was one thirty second two fifteen seconds one print ad and one radio ad thank you very much and that is just not how it is anymore <laughs> it's far from it in most of the time the brief is here's the business problem. Here are the metrics that I need you to achieve that deem success. Off you go. And that's very scary, but very exciting all in one because you have no idea whether you're making a film, whether you're making a podcast, whether you're, you know, having a, an article written by a journalist as part of an earned response. Who knows? But, you know, I guess that's we're certainly not saving lives, but um, but I guess that's the power of, of being in a creative industry. We do have the power to influence and, and change behaviour and ultimately you know, get people interacting with brands uh, as a result. So it's, it's it's an exciting thing to be doing. I love it. Well, um, can you talk a bit more? You mentioned the Snickers um, sort of process there and um, and Vegemite process, but are there any sort of more very memorable sort of moments that you've experienced, you know, during your career, especially at Thinkabel, um, that can sort of exemplify some of the things we've been talking about just now? 
one of the other pieces of work that um, that Paul and I were very involved in, and it's just an example of not quite knowing what the shape of the thing's going to be, and then it just take does take shape. Was um, when NRMA Insurance, one of our main clients, came to us and said, you know, we've we've donated two million dollars to Lifeline in support of the bushfire recovery line. This is a big deal, and it's meaningful to us as a business. What are we going to do about it, and how are we going to make this known in the world? And we sort of stared at this brief and thought, gosh, how are we going to make this interesting? And it ended up becoming this beautiful film called Invisible Fires in co- collaboration with Julia Stone, who ended up writing a bush poem around it uh, in conjunction with some incredible graphics of uh, a, a brain and and even just saying those three things out loud just sound like they shouldn't all collide and come together at all, but they did. Um and so just seeing that work out in the world and the journey that we went on to get there, not actually knowing what it was going to be from the very beginning, but seeing what it became, I think that for me was a moment of this is why I love doing what I do because we can communicate such important stories and, and, and notions to people yeah. that, that matter um, in an interesting yeah. way. And, and we mentioned kind of you know bravery or whatever earlier. That that was a great example of, of a client that, you know, um, was experienced and creatively sophisticated, and came along that journey, and um, was was prepared to live with that idea at periods when we were still figuring out where it was going to go. And um, you know, we, we kind of again we left that process just sort of you know uh, really kind of loving the the dynamic we had in that in that instance with uh, with the clients over at and remain insurance and the the faith they had an idea and the ability to stay with it um it's obviously sort of a lot of very controversial and sensitive subjects there bushfires and and mental health and mm. and 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 kind of the role of insurance within that and um yeah they, they were they were just uh, incredible to work with and collaborate with and it was it was just it was just everyone together in the pursuit of something kind of bigger I was going to go back to, you know, maybe some people have, uh, have known about your agency and, you know, are very creative people and want to get into the industry. Um, and, and, you know, you said talent is always is hard to get or good talent at, at, at that. So, you know, if someone's interested in becoming a creative director or, or start their, their career as a creative um, in some capacity with an agency context or even a client side, like what sort of recommendations would you, you give them? Is there any books they should read or like starting points or what's your sort of words of wisdom there? Yeah, I mean, in terms of getting into an agency in, the, in a creative role, there's kind of some um, there's sort of some more formal ways of doing that. There is, you know, courses through award and um, you know general assembly and and, and a few of those other ones. Um, I mean, some of the best people I've ended up working with haven't always come through that kind of more formal um, creative education, and they have they've just done something. Um, uh, they've um, they've proactively approached in a interesting creative way that's shown something about how they think and and uh, and they've been really persistent as well um and probably you know persistence and resilience um uh, are, are really important ones if you're going to succeed in this industry it doesn't matter how sort of um, talented you might be there will be um, rejection and disappointment you won't always get your idea made and you won't always get um, it made in the way that you want it to and uh, you know you will lose that pitch sometimes and, and things won't go wrong go go right all the time so um, I think if you can come into it with a sense of um, you know optimism 
and uh, with uh, you know a degree of kind of resilience around um, you know some of the challenges you might face, but the opportunities that you you might get. I think um, yeah, that's that's a good way to to head in. And if 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 you come in with those, you'll those will be identified in in the people who are you know the gatekeepers to those roles. And um, you know I think they'll appreciate it and they'll um, uh, you know they'll they'll want you to be part of the team. And I think as you're as you're looking to break into the industry, just be yourself and be bold. When I was at Ogilvy, I had the the pleasure of birthing their um, graduate program called Goliath, and I remember looking through fifty applications in in one day, and the ones that stood out were the ones that really just believed in themselves and didn't present their their CV as a CV. They presented it as a recipe book, you know, like we're a creative industry at the end of the day and find interesting ways of of representing Mm. yourself because you will be a needle in a haystack otherwise. And and so we want people who see the world differently and have a strong point of view about why that is and it doesn't have to be right or wrong. but, But I think we, you know, as an industry now, we're really trying to champion that that diversity of, of thinking and, and how people tackle challenges and, and approach things. So, yeah. so be, yeah, be yourself and, and be bold. And I think, I think what helps in doing that is if you, um, you really kind of engage and embrace with culture. Um, you know, I think that, again, the people that I've seen be most successful and, and particularly kind of enduring in, in the industry, um, but it also helps to get a foot in the door is if, is if you're kind of vivaciously um, uh, kind of um, embracing and absorbing what's happening in the world, in art, in design, in film, in music, in kind of all those places. I um, uh, had the luxury and privilege of working with um, some, some people over the years who have just um, just made, you know, made, made that a, a sort of central tenet of their life that they're always kind of staying relevant in terms of what's happening in the world. And, um, yeah, you'll never be left behind if, if you take that that kind of mindset with you. I, I was just going to say from my perspective, like, you know, I do a lot of st- strategic planning work and, like, I'm always taking things from, like, films, stuff that I've heard, like one-liners or, like, you know, from physics or concepts from, like, many other disparate uh, disciplines. And I, it, it's it's funny how often you'll pull little nuggets from there into a completely different context of something that you're working on, whether it's creative or, um, you know, a, a strategy deck or go-to-market strategy or whatever. Like, I'll always find the sort of references. Um, so, so yeah, I like what you're saying there in terms of, like, absorbing culture and not just being, you know, into, into one little narrow stream of existence yes that that's like like so many so many times i've got kind of an idea for how we would represent supers on an ad from the closing credits of a, of a movie and um i suppose i'm always looking um you know when i'm when i'm um, reading something or watching something or listening to something to see kind of where you know there's kind of bank that you have in the you know recesses of your mind you're thinking oh, i'm going to log that somewhere and it's going to it's going to come out in some execution in four years time for some, you know, um, toothpaste or something like that. You know, there's, um, uh, yeah, I suppose Katie and I both kind of love the game. We love advertising and I suppose we can't, we'll probably never switch that, that bit of our minds off. That's always kind of magpieing um, bits from um, bits from culture, kind of high, high, low and brow and, and low brow culture, I think high brow and low brow culture. We put, so much pressure on ourselves to be original and have original thinking and original ideas. 
So it's always a challenge to be making sure that what we're putting out into the world hasn't been done or seen before. And, uh, and I do think being culturally tapped in helps you move away from just using advertising as your frame of reference and you absolutely have to be aware of what's going on beyond that so that you can draw from other sources to try and reimagine something perhaps in a slightly different way than how it's been done before. Whether anything is ever truly original is probably a debate in and of itself. We've got some quick fire questions that I ask everybody, you know, standard kind of stuff, but I'm really interested to see what you guys uh, respond to these. So we'll just start with uh, perhaps you, Katie, first. A favorite book uh, on this discipline or in this industry that, um, that you'd recommend people read? I was thinking about what has really stood out to me. I mean, there's lots of standard ones that hopefully most of the marketing world have, have read. But I remember when I was um, in Texas, actually, at a KFC conference, I was given a book called The Originals by Adam Grant. And actually, speaking of originality, was just a really incredible book. Uh, I think um, Cheryl, Sa- uh, Cheryl Sandberg wrote the forward actually, but around original thinking and just tapping into your entrepreneurial spirit. That's a great one. Um, and the other one, oh gosh, I read these a long time ago. I need to get some new material, but The Culture Code um, was also brilliant at, 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 again, as we've been talking about today, how do we make sure that we are attuned to and understand the codes and how the brand is is orientating in or around those and, and the role that, that culture plays um, for those brands too. Uh, cool. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a measured one and a magic one. So um, the, the magic one, um, you've just always been a huge fan of, of, of John Hegarty, BBH, and, and so Hegarty on advertising is, is definitely worth reading, a, a, a true kind of icon sharing his his uh, you know his his wisdom and his truth um is is an amazing um magic one and and you know you you should you know have as fundamental reading how brands grow i think again if you're coming into the industry it's um it is foundational kind of um text i think for anyone just to give it, give you that um uh, that confidence um that you're you know uh, you've got the principles that are important for for contemporary communications i think it's surprising how many people are still in denial about some of the, the findings in in that book, the uh, how brands grow. Uh, I come across this all the time. It's like you know this is empirical laws, and they all no, no, that's not how it works. No, 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 no. <laughs> so I, I come up across that. Uh, I think it's just you know reinforced behavior. Read that one with caution, right? <laughs> no, no, yeah, absolutely. There's um, yeah, I think you got to challenge everything, and uh, yeah, there's definitely um, elements of that 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 we. we sort of challenge based on kind of experience and stuff like that but um yeah some good good principles i think website resources anything interesting here that you'd recommend people uh bookmark into their browser always contagious i'm an hbr obsessor um harvard harvard business review of course and i'm i uh, referenced martin weigel at the beginning um i think when we first started speaking this afternoon uh, as that head of planner at Widen and Kennedy Amsterdam, he has a blog and he just has the most incredible strategic mind. So I'm often ferrying around for interesting points of view from him on his blog and many others, but they're probably my top three. Well, I'll, I'll stay consistent with my theme then and go into a measured and a magic. So um, for the for the magic, um, I love looking at it. It's nice that um, it is, uh, you know, uh, really kind of progressive kind of um uh interesting um sometimes quite avant-garde and abstract um kind of design thinking um 
And uh, yeah, that's one of my kind of go-tos just if I've got a, a bit of a window in between meetings and things just to kind of have a have a scroll through about some of the, the more, um, you know, cutting edge things that are happening in that space. And for, for, you know, years and years now, I've subscribed to The Economist for a couple of reasons. One, it's kind of quite pretentious um, to, to have that kind of land on your, your doormat and it makes you look smart in front of your neighbours. But I love the kind of breadth of topic. Um, and I love the fact that once you've got that magazine, it forces you to read about all loads of different things you wouldn't normally. It kind of completely gets you out of your little bubble because um, you might be reading about you know, 18th century pottery or um, what's happening in Mozambique or whatever it might be, things that you wouldn't necessarily find in your, uh, in your social feed. Um, and, you know, I've always just found that, um, uh, you know, kind of that helps me um, keep my mind kind of agile and, and moving in different directions. And their pricing page as well, very interesting uh, pricing page. If you go online, they're trying to squeeze you towards yes. some options. So I don't know if you've been there recently, yeah. but that came up in a pricing book of someone that I interviewed. And um, yeah, it's very uh, interesting there. Uh, no, I love it too. Um, okay, and what about tech that you can't do without? Uh, is there some kind of like hardware or software that, you know, is, is your little hack to productivity or effectiveness in, in your role? Just my second screen. If I have my second screen, then the world is right and I can do 10 things as opposed to five things. And uh, I don't like it when someone steals my second screen. So that's my that's my one thing. Um, yeah, I mean, look, probably like my latest thing would be these AirPod things, which I have, um, uh, like everyone else, been, you know, um, using for, you know, at least sort of eight or nine hours a day over the last sort of couple of months. So, um, yeah, they're just a, a yeah, amazing, amazing piece of simple tech with a good battery life. And um, I haven't lost them yet. You see lots of sort of um, uh, lonely ones, don't you, kind of around the park that have fallen out while people have been jogging. And uh, so I'm, I'm keeping a close eye on my ones. You know, I was looking to AirPods and um, they are like a $40 billion product or something. They're like this amazing wow. amount of revenue they get just from just from the earpieces ear, ear uh, thing that came out, what, uh, three, four years ago? Like it wasn't yeah. that long ago and now it's $40 billion business. Uh, I'm insane. embarrassed about how um, okay, much I, they've got me, Apple still. I, they've, they've, they've still got me absolutely in the palm of their hand and they, they could literally release a, a new you know dinner plate and I would be... I'd be rushing out to have one. So yeah, whatever it is, it's I'm, the ecosystem I'm sold. Yeah, look, it's really interesting. Um, I mean, people talk about Apple, you know, the ads and Steve Jobs and blah, 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 blah. But like, you know, uh, from a strategy point of perspective, uh, you know, this is the ecosystem effect that um, uh, increases the value of every new device that you have. And they all sync together. You know, they have simplicity in terms of the UX and UI, like all these very subtle things that just make life easier. And um, I, I think, you know, it's only until you consider getting out of Apple that you'd be like, oh, no, no way am I ever doing that <laughs> because you're so in and you're getting so much value from it that you'd never ever consider like buying a Samsung phone or something, for example. Uh, I find that even, strategy that they've created quite interesting. Even the packaging. I mean, uh, it's just it, it's it's a joy <laughs> how they how they pull that off. It's it, I mean, execution just just to the nth degree. Anyway, you should keep yeah, me great. Okay. And um, what about um, quotes or memes um, about the topic we're discussing today that, um, I, like I mentioned the, the Market Tunis one by Tom Fishburne about innovation, which is like still one of my favorites because, you know, I, I find every one of his comics, I've literally been in the meeting 
on that exact thing where, where someone said that exact uh, phrase that he's using, that is almost too real. Um, what about um, anything like quotes or, or memes that you that you would recommend people uh, uh, look at? I just think if you haven't watched it, just spend some time just enjoying Mad Men. I mean, there's every possible topic you can imagine covered that relates to everything we've discussed today in there and then some. And there's some... There's just some beautiful moments. I can't remember which episode it, it was, but where Don Draper does the pitch on, uh, I think it's Kodak, and he ju- it's just absolutely seamless and it's just the epitome of, of how you do a pitch presentation to a client. So, Oh, that's the carousel, the carousel, carousel clip, I think, on YouTube about Kodak Carousel. Yeah, yeah, that is like, wow, that's like a tearjerker, isn't it? Incredible. It is. And if you just, if you want some inspiration on how to do things to the nth degree that is worth five minutes of your time um and and don draper says if you don't like what's being said then change the conversation and i think like that's on all of us to make sure that we are the ones that are having the right conversations and directing our clients to to do the right thing and and doing that in partnership together so watch some admin Hmm. love it um maybe this 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 one is um you know relevant because i suppose we're coming to the end of but um, a, a colleague that I worked with um, a number of years ago, a chap called Adam Donnelly, had this sort of really simple phrase that um, I've just found myself kind of reciting to people over and over again, uh, which is to start by starting. Uh, and I think we're in an industry where it is subjective by nature and that can lead to kind of procrastination and um, uncertainty about you know where to go or where you should be heading. Uh, and there's just something really refreshing in that notion of just getting going and you will kind of figure it out and um, you, know, the, you know you can stare at that blank page but once you've got something on there to react to or for someone else to react to um, you know the, the process seems much easier and that somehow the kind of pressures you know to slightly diminish so um, yeah start by starting um, by um, uh, Adam Donnelly um, is my is my it's not quite Don Draper but I love that one. My favorite one is probably um, the best marketing doesn't feel like marketing. And I think that's very true. And that's what I kind of see in some of your work as well. It's like brands just having normal conversation with, you know, a bit of banter with their, their competitors, like the Marmite thing, like just be authentic and, and, and um, less contrived. And, um, you know, I think that goes under the radar and sort of seeps into our consciousness a lot more effective than like, hey, buy our product. We're awesome, uh, which is what everyone does by default. Obviously, Thinkabell is the agency, if we want to call it an agency <laughs> or, or company. Uh, is there anything else you want to promote apart from, from that? Maybe some initiatives that you're part of or anything else associated with that? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, this is quite nice, isn't it? A plug. Um, uh, there's, a, there's an organization that I've worked with for a bit called uh, 10 by 10 Philanthropy. Uh, I could you know, talk about them for a bit. That, it's, it's a really interesting organization that helps um, fund grassroots charity. So if you're a big um, corporation listening to this, um, which I'm sure there will be, will be many, have a look at 10 by 10 Philanthropy and that might be something your organization would want to get involved in and support some really novel, innovative grassroots organizations. So um, shout out to 10 by 10. I would say to those of you who get out of bed in the morning and want to make creative work that genuinely changes the shape of conversations and can drive commercial outcomes for your clients, 
this is the place for you. So if you feel like you haven't quite found your home in the the agency landscape in Australia, then before you jump client side, where all the best often go, come and have a conversation with, with Paul and I first and join us at Thinkerbell. Yeah, thinkabell.com <laughs> slash careers or whatever your career page is. I love it. No, that's good. Um, well, look, I just really, uh, and if people want to get in contact with you, is um, DMing you on LinkedIn the best way or is it uh, filling out a contact form on the website or um, what's, what's the best uh, preferred method of contact for you? LinkedIn me. I will answer you. Yes. Yeah, LinkedIn's pretty pretty good for me too. Yeah. Or you can email us. You can you can, uh, you can can email me at katydaly at thinkabell.com and I will also answer you there. I don't think my email is on the website, so now the whole world has Ooh, watch out for the scammers. That's okay. Um, <laughs> look, I really want to thank you for the time. I think there's an interesting discussion about, um, you know, where we are with the state of, of creativity within, like, the modern agency sort of client dynamic and really like your work, which is, you know, why I'm talking to you today. I've been following you for quite a while and, um, you know, I've even bought Adam's book and I've seen him at a couple of things. So it's great having a spokesperson like that as well involved. But um, really wanted to talk to you both about you know, the business side of things as well. So I want to thank you for your time. Um, hopefully we'll, we'll do some more collaborations yeah, in the future. Thank you, John. It's been great fun and just nice to talk about what we do for a bit and not be in a, an, another meeting, but actually talk about, you know, stuff you're interested <laughs> in. So thank you. It's been lots of fun. Great. So you stuck around till the end. That's fantastic. Uh, I know that was a long one, but obviously when you're interviewing two people, I really want to hear both sides of of the coin from both of those people who are, as you learned, in sort of different roles uh, within the company. But the good thing about that is it adds a lot of depth to the conversation because they can sort of bat ideas off one another. So I hope it wasn't too long, but I hope you got something out of that as well. And look, um, that is another one of our strategy uh, sessions. So I'm trying to do about nine or 10 of these. Uh, The list of them is brand, product, pricing, messaging, SDP or segmentation, targeting, positioning, creative, sales, distribution, data slash research. So, um, so far we've done pricing, we've done a bit of brand, we've done a tiny bit of messaging through the copywriting episode with Vicky Ross, we've done uh, media with John Rowley, we've done creative just now, Um, we've got sales, distribution, data research, product to go and probably I'll do messaging and STP as well. So um, I hope you're getting a bit of a macro version of these strategic areas that I focus on with uh, all of my clients as part of the onboarding process with Hybrancy as well. So yeah, look, uh, as always, follow me on LinkedIn, the guy in the penguin suit, uh, John James, a dose of John on Twitter is my handle, uh, Champagne Society uh, on Instagram. If you want some champagne tips, just uh, message me there. Otherwise, you can always DM me on LinkedIn and we can start a conversation there. So look again, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.